This is episode number 15, part two, with Mark Simos, the author of Songwriting Strategies, A 360-Degree Approach. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to part two of my interview with Mark Simos, the author of Songwriting Strategies, a 360-degree approach. I'm assuming you've already checked out part one, so now you can jump into the conversation where we left off from part one. And I want to thank our sponsors at Yamaha, as well as Electric Violin Shop. And you know about these guys. You know much how, how much I love them both and how much they both mean to me and to our community. So let's jump into the episode, part two, with Mark Simos. Simos, and we're discussing his book on Berkeley Press, Songwriting Strategies, A 360-Degree Approach. He's talking for not only songwriters, but also tune writers, people that are writing music without words, and a lot of these strategies could be used for any composer, anyone who's trying to create their own music, using melody, harmony, rhythm, and lyric as the four points of a compass and sort of the axis of those is, is structure. Fascinating conversation with Mark Simos. I want to ask you, Mark, I think with a lot of the musicians that I work with, many of whom are classical string players or teachers, a lot of orchestral musicians, part of their training from an early age does not include composing and improvising. One of the jokes I like to make is, you know, if you got a hundred guitar players in a room and you ask who wants to take a solo, everybody's hand goes up. And if you've got a hundred bowed string players in a room. Yes, who wants to take a solo? Nobody's head goes up. So well, General Anger's hand goes up. Right? That's right. That's right. We we all know we know a lot of we have a lot of friends at Berkeley and elsewhere who obviously are the exceptions to this rule. The exceptions, but, yeah. But in general, there's still I was probably in fifty plus schools around the United States in the last few years, from middle school, high school, college. And I work with a lot of pro um, classically trained string players and teachers. And the idea of improvising or composing or arranging, I think of as all being sort of connected in some way, literally drives a lot of people to tears. 
you know, I think there's a lot of ways we can look at this in terms of the culture of how we're trained and also the psychology that this fear that we have. And I, I want to ask you to, to talk about that if you have an opinion on it. And I want to say one of my friends, Alan Desenzo, who's a, a wonderful composer, he said to me, he said, the best way to become a composer is to compose a hundred songs and then throw them all away. And then you'll be a composer. So I, I wonder what you think about any of that. Well, you covered a lot of ideas there. And uh, let me talk to the first one first. Because as you described it, I think I kind of had a revelation, sort of a new way of thinking about it for me. Because I was, I was actually just listening to this interview with Yo-Yo Ma on the radio show On Being. And he was talking about how classical music is perceived you know, these days as sort of a genre unto itself. And, you know, it's interesting that when we talk about what's different about the way that people listen to classical music now versus the way they listen to it at the time it was being written, say, like older classical music like Bach or Beethoven or Brahms or something like that, we put a lot of focus on the audience's experience of that music. But we don't talk as much about, so how were musicians trained in that world? And was, the, was there the same distinction, say, in Bach's time, between training someone to be a player and someone to be a composer? And I wonder if that distinction was as kind of Fundamental. fundamentalized as it's become now. Because now it's sort of like, if you want to be a, a serious classical player, First of all, the, the standard is so high that it's like training to be an Olympic athlete. Right. Meanwhile, the expectation is if you want to be a new composer, you're going to have to be writing something that's radically different in sound than this old Baroque stuff, you know? The idea that maybe the way to learn to play music of Bach's era would include learning to write music in that style that that's not a special separate training for someone who wants to go on and be a professional composer will do their counterpoint exercises and then immediately start creating, you know, concertos for foghorn and, you know, synthesizers. <laughs> <laughs> different was Bach's process in a world where, you know, he was famous as an improviser. You listen to those sonatas and partitas and you kind of go, like, what was his process in creating that? Did he sit down and extemporize most of the chaconne and then kind of say, oh, I like that, and then quickly notate from memory what he had played five minutes before mm -hmm. and then kind of work with the notation? I mean... Notation and recording devices are sort of versions of the same thing, as it were. So I think that you're always working with having the 
technique at your fingertips to spontaneously jam and play something that surprises you yourself. But then you also need memory or notation or technology, one or, you know, some combination of those things to remember what you did and go back and work with it as kind of compositional material. If playing that music and writing that music felt more unified to people, I wonder if the, their experience of it would be different. That's so, so radical. And the other thing that that sort of gets around is like you go to a classically trained violinist and, and, and you say, wouldn't you like to learn to improvise? And they sort of might feel like you're saying, don't you want to learn to play jazz, which is the music in which people improvise, instead of saying, you know, when this music was the music of the day, people improvised this music. Right. Bach said, you know, Beethoven was famous as an improviser. So who's being trained to improvise music in those? In Because I think if you were approaching those musical styles that way, they might turn out to be incredibly new and vital because actually a lot of it sounds sort of like fiddle music. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, that same division happens in the traditional music world. So I went out for a while and I was teaching at some of the music camps. And what I found is that in the traditional music world, there is the same exact compartmentalization. And you can go and say, oh yeah, I want to learn to play these old time fiddle tunes the same way as on these old field recordings or from this. But the idea that part of learning to play fiddle music is learning to write in those styles is actually very foreign still in most of the folk music settings. Wow. And I know because I've tried to offer classes in tune writing and for many years people kind of looked at me like I was from Venus. Now that's interesting because a lot of people may not know that in the old time or Celtic or Scottish or a lot of the folk fiddling traditions, there's not a lot of improvisation. Although obviously in bluegrass and some other maybe there's not a lot there's not a lot of there's not a lot of improvisation, but there's a lot of composition. There's right. A lot, yeah, and it's interesting because I remember talking to one classical violinist who was sort of trying to go the alternative strings route, and she was sort of saying, well, we have so much to learn from traditional fiddle music styles because those styles are all based on improvisation. And I was like, no, they're not. Right. Bluegrass is, swing, jazz, you know, styles that were influenced by jazz, but to call what a great Irish fiddler is doing improvisation and sort of paint the, it with the same brush as what a great improvising jazz musician is, it doesn't belittle either one of them, but you're simply missing the point of that radically different things are going on in those styles. So that's why for me, tune writing is so fascinating because it's really a lost art, even though currently, you know, hundreds of people are doing it. Like if you, surveyed the tunes that Cape Breton players are playing. You know, lots and lots of Cape Breton players are making up new tunes. But just very few people are talking about a pedagogy of tune writing while they have been talking about a pedagogy of teaching traditional fiddle style. So you can have you can go to workshop after workshop of how to do Irish bowing and ornamentation or all these but when tune writing happens in those traditions it's still rarely actually talked about in terms of how did you do that? You know, so um, I wonder whether there might be an approach 
to looking at all these genres that sort of instead of dividing up the world in terms of classical repertoire and folk repertoire and jazz and bluegrass, instead you sort of said, you know, there's different kinds of musical materials and forms, and then there's sort of learning to perform something that's notated, and there's learning to write new things in that style, and there's learning to improvise flu you know, fluently in the moment. These are all complementary skills that are part of being a well-trained kind of you know musician that would be that would be pretty radical i think it to many people it would be and to you and me and to a lot of our friends or colleagues daryl anger as you mentioned and uh, my former student andy reiner who i know you probably know well who's very prolific uh, yeah tune writer um and improviser it's it's what we aspire to do every day right i mean it's it's what, right. it's what we're committed to and but i think to people at many conservatories around the country it is radical and i, and I appreciate that you brought up that it's that that same division is present within the folklore world where players are they're just looking at themselves as players they're not looking at themselves as potential writers or potential improvisers and and i really appreciate you setting the record straight on that because that's something that's obfuscated for a lot of people so obviously part of this is the culture and that's what we're addressing we're the the culture i like to say the culture of education the culture of our training which either encourages us or doesn't encourage us to take on some of these different challenges and then i believe that we get sort of that's what we fall into. Well, well, all we've ever focused on was playing in a certain style, so that's all we know. And so then the fear level of trying something else, I think part of the reason the fear escalates <laughs> and people get so afraid is because they've started to identify, self-identify as being experts at something. Right. And so it's kind of harder and harder to risk failing at, like, even though it's a different skill, maybe you know composing a song or whatever but they're so afraid of i couldn't try to compose this song because it's going to be bad and i'm going to look bad and i'm just my whole facade of being you know an expert is going to fall away and i'm going to be exposed as a fraud you know right because i mean by the by the time you've played enough bach to maybe do a passable version of writing something in that style you're, you're going to be a lot better player than you're going to be a composer in that style. And also, the models that you have, the standards that you're being held up to in classical music, you know, in Bach's day, there were thousands of, you know, musicians writing some good and some mediocre stuff in that style. But, you know, you would have been surrounded by a sea of music in that style. And your efforts wouldn't be that much worse than anybody else's except Bach's. But now, Bach is what we have left. So you're going to go, like, that's the standard of music in that style. And, of course, your efforts are going to fall, like, way short of that, like, you know. And, and actually, that happens in traditional music, too, because I think that in the traditional culture that actually new tunes were being created all the time, but only the best of them kind of got remembered and passed down. So once again, we kind of go, well, I've tried to write a fiddle tune, but none of my fiddle tunes sound as good as Soldier's Joy. Why, why should I mess things up? You know. Well, I think that it's because... Writing, taking your swipe and writing the new ones is sort of part of being a traditional player. Hmm. So I think that, you know, in the world of 
classical music, the pedagogy for how to compose is all there. It was it was all established a long time ago. And maybe the problem is just, as you said, the culture of how people are trained and maybe compartmentalization. jazz world has done an amazing thing in terms of building pedagogies around improvisation. I think that's been actually covered very, very well. The reason I got all interested in this is the one corner where there really is surprisingly little written about a pedagogy is actually tune writing. Writing tunes in traditional styles is the one corner where lots of people do it, but remarkably few people have written about how to do it. So, like, that's the area where we actually need materials that aren't there yet in terms of like new approaches to teaching that stuff. And that's a lot of what I've been working on in the last few years at Berkeley. This is all kind of outside of the scope of the book that we've been talking about, but more what I've sort of been doing to take that approach and go back to traditional music, which is my you know great love of mine, and sort of see if some of these approaches would inform that. If someone is in this place where they're just, it's, they feel it's so daunting to write music, to even write 12 bars or a, a song or whatever, and they just can't get over that vulnerability of being a novice, you know? Yeah. And, and they're so attached to their identity as an expert performer and the fear that this disparity between their <laughs> novice level of as a composer, they just can't bear to do it. One idea I have, and I want to see what you think about it, is instead of writing a whole song or instead of writing a whole original symphony, <laughs> you know, yeah. should should they be starting with more manageable chunks, you know? And are there like little s simple ways to force yourself to get over the hump and gradually build up to writing an entire song? The answer from the book would yeah. be that, I mean, one of the virtues of the seed approach is that it gets you starting with very, very small elements and kind of building layer by layer. So you can start with writing just even like a small little section yeah. and kind of work with that. So a lot of times when I'm teaching songwriting, I really encourage people to spend time writing something that isn't a whole song, but maybe just one section. Or... Just try to write a melody with no lyrics and no, if possible, even not even necessarily fixed chords in your mind. Right. And just kind of go, well, what if I just tried to write a melody that really works as a melody, really flows as a melody? Or what if I write a chord progression that I know eventually should be a chord progression for a song, but I'm just going to work on just writing the chord progression until it sounds good? You learn a huge amount of that. So that's kind of a etude sort of approach. Yeah. Allowing yourself to do these little studies. Right. And I have found that, that that helps take some of that huge pressure off. But there's another 
technique that I've been working with a lot, and this would be an interesting thing to see whether it would fly in the classical world as well, because I do think that you know, working with small forms is a big help. The other thing is this idea of working with, what's the word in the, when you take a model and you sort of build from a, a model? In, a, a contrafact? Uh, a contrafact? Contrafact, yeah. So, you know, if you're studying counterpoint, that's an accepted, you sort of take a line that, you know, Candace Firmus or something like that, and you write something new based on that. Songwriters have tended not to use that because of this whole idea that your song has to be poured from your deepest innermost soul. <laughs> but I've been working a lot with this idea that I call stealing fire. Take something that you really love, like a song or a tune. I actually developed this first with tune writers, but now I'm applying it to songwriters. And you kind of dive into that tune, not just as a player, but really like, so what is the magical thing going on in that tune or song that makes me love it so much? And you kind of dive into that, and then you steal it. And then you kind of go, why don't I try to write something that does that? So you kind of use an existing tune as a model or a template. You know, this is something that I have a feeling composers in the American songbook tradition did this a lot. You know, they would sort of take tunes as starting points and kind of cast them over. And there you've got the advantage that you're working from some form that you already know works really well because you've got a, a sort of an exemplar in front of you that's proven and that you love. And then even when that process breaks and you try to imitate that thing and then you create your own version and you go, boy, my version just is, is missing something that was in the original, that process of moving back and forth also teaches you a lot. So it's a great way of, I think, going deeper into the actual tradition that you're trying to learn, whether that be the classical repertoire or the jazz repertoire. But it's also a way of finding your own voice with it, but starting with some unembarrassed imitation as a way of going. I think this is something that players are very comfortable with this, you know, transcribing your Charlie Parker solos and learning them note for note, because you know that if you learn enough of those, you'll gain the vocabulary to be able to do your own solos that won't sound so derivative. But if, strangely enough, I think composers are a little more reluctant to do this, and I think songwriters are really reluctant to do this kind of contrafact approach. It is a great way to get over that hump of the sort of terror of trying to write something new in a tradition where you're surrounded by these pristine, high-quality repertoire that is the master repertoire that we all use to sort of scare the bejesus out of ourselves. Going back to this idea that I, I brought up earlier, I mean, about kind of almost pulling from a hat, you know, pulling yeah. pulling different structural elements from a hat, like saying, okay, I'm going to pull up, you know, okay, a form. So it's going to be in just an ABA form. Okay. And then yeah. I'm going to pull out a groove and okay. So it's going to be a standard four, four pop beat. I pulled that out of a hat and then I'm going to pull out a tempo. Okay. It's 120 BPM. And then I'm going to pull out some harmonic aspect or, you know, or maybe a traditional, you know, the idea of a tango melody, you know, a certain mm. style or something like that. When I've been in situations before as a composer where someone forced me to work in a very specific set of constraints, that has been some of the times when I've had the easiest time getting over my own fear and sort of blank slateness 
because they were like, no, it needs to be a 12-bar blues. It needs to be in the key of F, and it can't sound country, and the melody has to be something that's, you know, a four-bar thing that's repeated three times, and there's only going to be one chorus of violin solo. That's it. Write the piece, and I need it tomorrow. And, so, you know, those were the times when it was actually the easiest for me to write something. And sometimes I resent, I thought that I resented it because I was like, oh, this is so stupid. Like they're taking the choice away from me, but it actually made it easier for me. And um, and I so I wonder if you think that that would help some people who, who are struggling with, I just can't do it. I just can't force myself to bring myself to do it. Everything I do, just, I'm just second guessing everything. No, it's a great, it's a great concept. We're talking about, these are strategies, I would say, in a, in a broader sense than the, the sort of the micro strategies in my book are a little more kind of baseline than that. They're really more like sort of what are the different kinds of moves in terms of the sort of material that you're actually working with. So I think from a songwriting perspective, in trying to get exactly the right melody for your song, you might go through hours and hours of those kinds of revisions. And of course, that's a mysterious and a wonderful process but the sort of really strategic moves are like when do i flip over to lyric when do i start putting lyrics to this melody these are strategies that are kind of at the same level as seeds or jamming or model-based writing part of what you're talking about is what i call challenge-based writing you know like giving yourself a constraint and saying i wonder if i can do this usually for me a challenge involves something that's hard to do that's sort of designed to be hard to do so i usually think of it less as a way of getting myself unpanicked about how to start and more as a skill building kind of exercise but i also think that it's great to give people what you might call task-based challenges so like anyone who wants to be a pro songwriter should be able to do what you're talking about like I need a song for this movie and it's got to sound like it's from the old West and it's got to be 30 seconds long, you know, like in some sense, the more constraints you're given, yes, it hems you in. And maybe that's not what you feel like writing that morning, but being able to respond to kind of requirements like that and sort of have the, the river of your creativity forced through the narrow channel of those constraints can be really energizing for a lot of people. The only thing I'd say is that if you sort of just had a time signature palette here and a key signature palette here and a style here, and you sort of grabbed your, you know, mixed and matched at random, you know, it's possible that you'd come up with some things that actually aren't very compatible with each other, in which case, those multiple challenges could actually kind of get in your way. Gotcha. So the one thing about you know having a model to work from is that there you know that all of those different things do work together and right. they give you, you know. However, I have found that if you do want to go from a model, you don't want to imitate like all five interesting elements of it because then it will just sound like a sound alike. Right. You want to pick one of the elements and say, let me copy that thing and make the other things as different as possible. Right. But what, you're, but what you're talking about is a different thing and also I think a really cool way to work. I know that when I started playing with technology like Ableton Live or even some of these little apps that have just kind of fun little beats that you can pick up or weird sounds like I have found that as soon as I have some strange 
synth instrument to work with, like I almost immediately can generate an idea. As soon as I hear that sound, it's like, oh, you mean it would be like this? And so sort of like, as soon as I hear that weird instrument, it immediately gives me an idea. And I remember thinking at one point, I wish I could get hired by one of those like synthesizer companies just to be the guy to compose the little <laughs> sample tracks for every one of the little <laughs> samples in their library. But. reminds me of the idea that a lot of times the process that you use can really change how comfortable you might feel so if like for example for me i used to since i was a classically trained violin player when i first started improvising and composing i definitely would not want to use the violin to do it like if but if i sat at a piano or a guitar then it might be more comfortable or there are some people they might have more comfort if they just sit down with a pencil and paper and try to generate something or other people might be more comfortable singing in the car or right there's like there's a lot of different processes sort of this idea of just like trying all of them and finding out which works for you i suppose you would agree with yeah i think it's an interesting idea that i was just listening back to cheryl crow's it was a big hit song of hers and it was from an album called Tuesday Night Sessions or something like that. And basically she had this group that met every Tuesday night, and the rule was that you had to play an instrument that wasn't your main instrument uh -huh. to write your songs. And I think a lot of people have told me that, say, once they have too much technical knowledge on the piano, for example, that the guitar becomes their songwriting instrument because it's the instrument that it's okay to suck at. <laughs> right. And I actually teach this class at Berkeley called Guitar Techniques for Songwriters that's all about approaching the guitar as a writing instrument rather than learning your scales and learning to be a comping, soloing accompanist. It's more about how do you get lost on the guitar and find some cool, weird thing that you've never heard before and use it to start a song. Right. So I think there are, there are strategies for getting yourself lost mm -hmm. in a productive way. Uh, I actually have an exercise I call the Jackson Pollock exercise where you literally throw your hands down on the fingerboard in a shape you've never played before and then you need to actually, you know, kind of make a piece of music out of it. And uh, that relates to something you'd asked me about earlier, which is, you know, I mentioned that for me, seeds are things that you notice in the stream of your everyday life that catch your ear and seem like good starting points for songs. But I think there is another tradition, and this is sort of the John Cage chance composition, aleatoric composition that sort of says, there's also something to be said for sticking a pin in the phone book and telling yourself that whatever you have arrived at will be your seed, whether you like it or not, whether it seems interesting or not. That's also a great way to open things up, I think. 
So when John Cage was starting his compositions by throwing the I Ching, I think he was, it was another kind of way of challenging himself to say, hey, just because this thing didn't attract my attention on its own, but I got to it by chance operations, let me still challenge myself to use it as my starting point for creative work. Unfortunately, we've now described the next book that I wish I could write, which is sort of like songwriting strategies, 30,000 foot level. Ah, um, no, I mean, it, to me, well, not to disagree with you, but I mean, as much as I respect your understanding of all these distinctions that you keep alluding to, to me, thinking as a lay a lay composer, if you will, or as someone who who dabbles in a lot of stuff, I, you know, yeah. and thinking about my my students and my teachers, I think that this is all so useful in a broad sense, and not to diminish the distinctions, but to say that in one way they, they almost don't matter because the thing that, that's so exciting to me about this book that you've written is that it's really giving people strategies for creating. And that's really what I'm, I'm so passionate about it. I think you've done such an amazing job with this book, Mark. It, it's great that, you know, you're in this confluence of worlds between tune writers, old time fiddle playing, songwriting, and you're, you know, in the halls of Berkeley, which I know so well from when yeah. I used to be there, we used to run into each other. And I know I all you can see how that book is like, really, I had a lot of those ideas before I got to Berkeley, but Berkeley was definitely the perfect incubator for, <laughs> for those ideas. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of that systematic approach that really you could trace it all the way back to Schillinger, really, in terms of the culture at Berkeley of saying, let me look at all the combinations of things and kind of see where that leads me, which I think can look cold and mechanical from the outside. But I think for people that use it as a way to engage their passion, it's actually very liberating as well. Yeah, Berkeley to me is kind of like one of the only places where people, whoever you are walking the halls, you're kind of constantly confronting yourself and your ideas about what does it mean to be a musician, whereas the compartmentalization, as you've referred to before in a lot of the other conservatories, I feel like are sort of laying it out and saying like, this is what you're going to do. You're either going to be this or this or that or the other. I mean, right. at Berkeley, you can, obviously at Berkeley, there are specific course tracks degree tracks you know we still have that but i for some reason i feel like there's more built in this common this idea that i could draw from all of these things and do all of these things and i don't have to be a master at just one of them but i could draw from music production and engineering and songwriting and old-time fiddle and modern jazz arranging and i could you know put it all together and and have a career you know, more schools are going to have to fall in line. The reason that I do what I do <laughs> and that this podcast exists is for the legions of musicians out there that I feel are really 
in some ways maybe suffering because they're not feeling that they have access to these ideas. And so this is one of my favorite interviews I've done on the on the Creative Strings podcast. I want to encourage everybody to get this book. It's called Songwriting Strategies, A 360-Degree Approach by Mark Simos, S-I-M-O-S. And it's on Berkeley Press. That's Berkeley, B-E-R-K-L-E-E, as in the Berkeley College of Music. And Mark has been at Berkeley for at least 10 years. Ten, yeah. yeah, 10 years. I was I was there with him for a while before I moved on, and he's still there. And uh, he's got testimonials here from Allison Krauss, Patty Larkin, and some other great writers, songwriters, instrumentalists. And I've looked through it, and so many great ideas here. And what I want people to take from this is to go and do it. Don't just talk about songwriting. Don't just talk about improvisation. Don't just talk about composition, arranging, whatever it is, whatever, however you're going to manifest your own creative process as a musician. I want to see you doing it. If you're a teacher, if you're a player, whatever genre you're in, we want you doing it because I'm sure, Mark, that you agree with me that you know, the more people that are creating and putting stuff out in the world, that's just, it's just a good thing. I do agree with that. And actually my, one of my favorite parts of the interview is just how you grabbed your fiddle. And then as soon as we were talking about it, he said, well, let me try that. <laughs> I said, like, that's so great. He's, he's doing it right. Cause as soon as you try it, you immediately sort of see, like you had mentioned just kind of a last thought, you know, that I do sometimes tend to be a little bit of a stickler for making distinctions between things and, uh, definitions. And I think some of that is just because I think that sometimes people tend to mystify the, the creative process. Yeah. And they think by staying vague about things that you could be clear about that they're sort of doing a better service. I find that sometimes those distinctions are important because mm. it's helpful to know when you're trying one thing. Mm that it's that thing and not something else. So mm. the standard joke in my classes is, you know, I ask people to go off and do some weird thing and they come back and everyone's done it in a slightly different way. And I kind of go, well, you know, you can't do a Mark Simos exercise wrong. It's just <laughs> that you're doing a different exercise, <laughs> you know? So it's not that it's horribly important that seed catching is different than jamming. Right. It's just that, there is a distinction there, and to get really good at one or the other of those things, it's helpful to know, oh, now I'm doing this, and now actually I'm doing something different. You know, it feels different, and the results are going to be different. So I was really, in some ways, trying to create a vocabulary in that book for talking about different ways of writing songs and honoring the diversity of those ways, because that book makes acceptable ways of writing songs that a lot of time people would say, well, I'm not really writing songs the way I'm supposed to because I'm sitting here with my guitar just singing weird nonsense syllables and staring out the window. And I go, oh, well, that's strategy number you know, four. You're, you're following a pathway that's a perfectly viable pathway. It's just you don't want that to be the only pathway that you can use to write songs. And the, the whole spirit of 360 is find the ways that are your comfort zones and then flip those ways around and try other ways. And that will open up your range, your, the depth of your writing over time. If you kind of go into it with a spirit of exploration and bravery and fun, it takes a little bit of that horrible pressure off of just the songs have to be 
wrenched from some one place of authenticity in order to kind of count as great songwriting. That's great. Thank you for clarifying why you think it's important to make those distinctions. I appreciate that. I really do. Because there's a world within the creative process, leaving it vague, maybe does do a disservice. And, and you know, really clarifying and uh, articulating all of these tools and how they can be wrapped into a larger, um, broader view is super valuable. I get that. I appreciate that. You know, for myself, you know, creating new music or pushing my improvisation in a different way, arranging something, whatever it might be, even writing a blog post or, you know, is one of the most challenging and intimidating things still for me, you know, to go out and create. But Whenever I do it, I never regret it afterwards. It's kind of like going to the gym. Like you think like, oh, do I really have to go today? But nobody ever says, man, I really, I'm really mad. I'm really, uh, I'm sorry I went to the gym. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you're never sorry if you sat down and you tried to write a song, even probably even if you failed, I think you still feel like, you know, I went through this process and it was a valuable process. There's something almost spiritual. And I don't know if you, what you would say about that. Yeah, I actually think that part of why I mapped out this pathways in the book is that in some ways you know you're doing the right thing when the results are not to your satisfaction. (laughs) We like to do what we can do, but if you only do what you can already do, you kind of spiral yourself inwards into this sort of safe zone. And if you are willing to spiral out instead... One of the ways you make that possible is by saying, I'm going to trust the process and the experience at first more than holding myself to perfect results. Yeah. If you want perfect results, you can't take the risk of trying it in a different way. Yeah. Trying it in a different way that you haven't done before has to mean that you can't guarantee that the results will be perfect. Yeah. And you've got to learn to love that instead of be afraid of it. That is a great note to finish this interview on. Uh, with yeah, Mar- this has been a great conversation. And really love where we went with it, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Mark Simos, Songwriting Strategies, a 360-degree approach on Berkeley Press. I want everybody to go get this. We're going to try to get some of your music, Mark, on the show notes page. Uh, if you go to christianhouse.com. We're going to have links to a bunch of Mark's uh, work and ways to find him. Where can they find you if they would, you got a website or an email or a Twitter or whatever it is? Yeah, I'll, I can send you those links, but I have an artist website called devachan.com. There's a sort of informational website for the book called songwritingstrategies.com. Ah. And then there's actually a, a site called 360songwriting.com that my vision of that is to have that really be overall a broader community for songwriters wanting to share these kinds of techniques so actually at that site are audio files for all of the examples in the book all of the notated examples Ah. uh, that you can just download and kind of to make it easier to go through the book but i have a little section there called ask the prof where people are sort of sending in you know questions and experience reports about working with the book the book's starting to be used in a lot of different college courses around the world songwriting courses at different places so 
starting to be more and more people working with these techniques. And I'm hoping to get more shared results so people could sort of see. Here's a song I wrote when I've traveled the path from melody to lyric to rhythm. So there's a bunch of those sites that are up there, and I can make sure you've got those links. Really brilliant, Mark. I really love hearing you talk on this subject. Really awesome, man. I'm so glad we did this. Thank you. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of part two. I hope you liked it. And as always, I would really appreciate if you would consider sharing it, leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Make sure you're subscribed and feel free to hit me up with any kind of feedback you have, any kind of thoughts or comments. You can go over to uh, christianhouse.com and onto the blog and leave a comment there if you like, or hit me up on Facebook, look for Christian House Violin. I want to thank our sponsors, as always, at Yamaha and at Electric Violin Shop for supporting us and enabling us to do this. And I will see you on the next episode. It's going to be a great one. It's with Black Violin. See you soon.